this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Leszczycki as I Knew Him, written by Ethel Newcomb and published in 1921 by D. Appleton and Company. Chapter 12 Leszczycki was no less brilliant as a pianist than as a teacher. This fact was unknown to the general public, for, after his marriage to Annette Esipoff, one of his pupils, he became so absorbed in her career that he was apparently willing to sacrifice his own, and gave up most of his concert engagements to her. He made her a famous pianist, and when he spoke of her and her playing, he was all admiration and enthusiasm, and he always liked to tell of what a model of musicianship she was. He used to like to tell of her examination at the St. Petersburg Conservatory. She was given the piano part of the Schumann Quintet to transpose before a large audience. With such complete success did she proceed that the first movement was hardly finished when a prolonged storm of applause saved her the necessity of further convincing the audience of her ability to accomplish the feat. When in later years Therese Leszczycka, her daughter, came to visit her father as she often did, he always asked her lovingly how Madame Esipov spent her day. Once the daughter answered, The first thing in the morning she sews a little, then she reads a little, and then is ready for the real part of the day which is devoted to music. When Madame Asipov came to Berlin, she and Leszczycki sometimes appeared at concerts together, when the whole audience would rise and applaud this famous artist couple. While she was in Vienna, as Madame Leszczycka, one often heard of her playing duets, such as the Schumann variations, with the great artists who happened to be there, on some occasions with Rubinstein. She played all these duets from memory, and it did not matter to her which part she took, knowing both equally well. Leszczycki himself stood nearby, always thoroughly enjoying the performance and the music. People who remembered them both at that time used to remark that he seemed perfectly happy when she played. As late as 1900, Leszczycki promised Hermann Wolf, the well-known manager of Germany, and a friend of his, to undertake a long concert tour in Russia and Germany. In speaking of this time, he said that he had relaxed his continuous teaching a little and had really practiced. This was noticeable in the enormous repertoire which he seemed suddenly to have acquired, and in his willingness to play for people. He played, of course, a great deal in the lessons, and as he sat at the second piano five or six hours a day giving lessons, he retained his technique and marvelous tone, so that no one seemed to compare with him. In lessons, he invariably played the most difficult passages, never shirking the hard work imposed by any composition, new or old, and indeed he would often learn the piece then and there, 
He once remarked that when the time came that he could not play better than the pupil before him, he would shut up shop. But this tournée came to nothing, for Hermann Wolf died, and Leschetizky's ambition was not a sufficient incentive for him to undertake the tour under other management, and his love for teaching made it easy for him to stay at home. Later he embarked on a tiny concert tour, as he laughingly called it, to play for the Veltaminion Records. We went down to the station to see him off with his servant, Johann. Indeed, he took very seriously his own playing, as well as that of all others, for this reproducing piano. The time when Leschetizky was most willing to play was naturally after one of the classes. He might have accompanied two or three concertos during the class proper, but after the midnight supper, and after having smoked strong cigars, he was fresh again for hearing music or for dancing, in which he excelled, and often for playing himself. Some of us knew a little trick which would usually succeed in persuading him to play. He often played for us to dance, always requiring us to dance perfectly according to his tempo changes. And when we had danced a while, and he had become warmed to the beat of the music, someone would find the right moment to ask him to play one of his own pieces. Oh, no, no, he would say. Let someone else do it who can play it far better. Why not you? Or why not you? Nodding to different ones. Finding nobody willing. Really, shall I play? He would say quite diffidently and humbly. At once he became the inspired artist, sitting quietly and directly, his head uplifted a little, and his hands firmly down on the keys his fingers showing almost no motion. With the first tone, everyone was spellbound. No one, I believe, ever succeeded in imitating the quality of his tone. Under his fingers, a powerful and sonorous tone resounded and vibrated until every corner of the room was filled with beautiful sound. He spoke in tones, and everyone felt himself directly spoken to. He played to all natures and all emotions, turning easily and simply from joy to sorrow. Then, as if seeing someone who needed to be stimulated or inspired, he played with a nobility and grandeur that was indescribable. Sometimes the volume of sound was really awe-inspiring, but never hard for a moment. There might be one crash, but only in momentary contrast, and to hear his pianissimo was to feel oneself dropped gently from a great height to listen to a beautiful voice somewhere in the shadows. His interpretations were far above all calculation and intention, for of all desirable qualities in his playing, fantasy stood uppermost. His friends and pupils knew this. He learned to play a melody isolated from the harmonies around it, he said, by imitating singing, the beautiful singing of his first wife. One should learn to play all melodies by listening to them as to a voice, he thought. Under the inspiration of his first marriage, early in his career, he had written a few songs. 
He loved singing, and particularly a contralto voice. It was surprising to hear him say that he did not like the violin. The piano was the instrument of his choice, and he could never understand why its study should be considered drudgery, even under the most trying and difficult conditions. He told of a time in Russia when he had been obliged to remain in town through unbearably hot weather. The great heat made normal conditions of study impossible, but he was not daunted by this, and in some way managed to get his piano put into a small space surrounded by water. Here he could dispense with all clothing, lock his doors, and study in comfort all day. If he had consented to play in his own house after the classes, he would sometimes go on for an hour or two and play a concerto, or even two. He could play at least twenty concertos, for his memory never failed him. The time I best remember was when he gave us the C minor concerto of Beethoven as the climax to many other small pieces. This was about four o'clock in the morning, when everybody but Leschetitsky needed some stimulus to liveliness. This concerto was a great favorite with him, and in his opinion the second theme of the first movement could never be played simply and sublimely enough. No one would have thought from his playing that he had not been practicing this particular concerto for a special occasion. It was so surely and perfectly performed. Most likely he had gone over it lately with a pupil. Everybody felt revived after this performance. Leschetitsky himself seemed so happy and in such excellent form that he turned and told Ignaz Friedman, who was standing near, that if he would accompany the Litolf concerto, he would play that. Again, he played as though he were playing in a concert. We drank more tea, and about half-past six walked into Vienna, Leschetitsky being, as usual, the liveliest of the group. Very few interpretations satisfied Leschetitsky entirely. No one played with fantasy and freedom enough for him. No coulisses was one of his frequent phrases. You are so worried over what you must do next, he used to say. Throw all that away. It only hinders your free fantasy. Get down to the real meaning of the music and put warmth into every tone. Don't desecrate that music by trying to make it fit another story. The tones are the story and the form the plot. What more do you need if the music is good? He brought out beauties in composition and tone relationships which were not produced by any rules or regulations of expression and amazed the listener. Just once I heard him put words to a phrase, and on that occasion he was in despair because the pupil could not get any meaning or inflection in the phrasing. He himself had written one or two pieces upon a definite emotional idea, but he did not value them for this, regarding it as a thing extraneous to the music. The melody of the Canzonetta Toscana resembled a song he had heard from an old woman sitting on the steps of a church in Florence, mourning the loss of her daughter. When playing his mandolinata, he used to say, This is where the tenors come in. Sentimental, of course. 
When he was asked why he did not write out the stories in connection with these pieces, he said, Yes, I know Liszt did that sort of thing, but it doesn't interest me. The farther away one kept from being influenced by words and stories in most works for the piano, the better one understood him in his teaching and playing. He used to make the rather startling statement that music was a dramatic art. He saw a direct connection between the expression of a piece and good acting. Certain small pieces are all acting, he declared. To study rhythm, he thought, one should go where rhythm was. What could be more instructive than going out to the gypsies in the Prater and listening to their wild free rhythms? He would often be found there, sitting by himself in a corner, absorbed in their peculiar manner of playing. On one occasion, the presence of Leshetitsky was greatly desired by some people in town, but he was nowhere to be found and had left no word that offered a clue to his whereabouts. Servants were sent to one place and another, lastly to the theatre, but still without finding him. Somewhat suggested the Venice in Vienna at the Prater. It was reported that he had been seen there earlier in the evening, but it was now too late to meet the people who wished to see him, and some friends, who had about given up the quest, strolled over to a café house on the other side of the Prater, where the peasants were amusing themselves. Hearing curious sounds issuing from the place, they went inside. A girl with bells on her wrists was playing the piano and making a great noise, to the utmost delight of her audience. Over at one side sat Leshetitsky, watching every move of the player. Hush, he said to his friends who came up to him. I shall sit here until she stops, for she has perfect rhythm. She has played twenty times, and every piece was with a different rhythm. You've never heard anything like it, he said enthusiastically, as if to forestall the banter of his friends. I want to stay, he protested. Don't try to take me away. Leshetitsky attended many concerts in Vienna, not only the good ones, but poor ones as well. He liked to hear every new performer, and often, where one least expected it, he found something commendable in the performance. He was annoyed if his pupils missed certain concerts, and often requested them to go to a certain one which he himself could not attend, so that they could tell him about it afterward. But telling him about it afterward meant more than merely listening to the music. It meant remembering exactly how certain pieces were played, what tempos were taken, and even how certain tones were produced. He himself returned from a concert once, declaring that he would never again attempt certain single tones with the same hand. A young player had convinced him that they sounded better taken each time by a fresh hand, and he had also learned in this concert what not to do in some other respects. He followed the concerts of all cities in Europe, and knew of every musical event in Paris and St. Petersburg. He read carefully the criticisms of all European newspapers, as well as those of the English papers. "'You have some good critics in America, too,' he once said to me. 
one especially. His criticisms are sound and give me great pleasure. Of great interest to him were the first appearances of his pupils in Berlin, although the complacency of the Berlin critics was a perpetual irritation to him. He often spoke gratefully of that stipendium given him by Paderewski, which made it possible for pupils of his to appear with orchestra, who otherwise could not have afforded it. He was most attentive to the opinion of important critics, and it was a serious thing for a pupil of his to receive bad notices. I once said to him quite casually before a concert, "'What if I have no success with the critics?' His thoughtful, serious look made me realize the importance he attached to criticism. "'If your notices are not good,' he said, "'we will set to work to see what is the matter.' Nevertheless, the German critics always annoyed him, and always had annoyed him. The Germans liked to pose as more dignified than the Viennese, and were most certainly jealous of the great distinction that belonged to Vienna by tradition and talent. Leschetizky studied the personality of critics as well as of artists, and did not speak without authority. He loved to relate his experiences in Germany, playing the E-flat concerto of Beethoven, which he had learned with his master Czerny, a pupil of Beethoven. The copy he had used in studying had many marks on it in Beethoven's own handwriting. Over some heavy chords and some passages in the middle of the first movement, Beethoven had written the word free. In one of the introductory passages, there was a mordant written in also in Beethoven's own hand. He had many other interesting copies handed down to him by Czerny with marks by Beethoven. In several of them was advice to put in a cadenza ad libitum, notes which are never seen in any edition. When the Germans, who thought they were authorities on the interpretation of Beethoven, noticed and commented critically upon these deviations, Leschetizky loved to remain silent and let them talk on. Whenever he was teaching a German to play Beethoven, or any one imbued with this German spirit, he knew where to lay his hands on these old copies easily. It utterly disgusted him to hear Beethoven played coldly, his idea being that if it was not played warmly, it was played coldly. There was no middle ground. At the obviously intentional strictness of tempo that many affected in playing Beethoven, he would mutter in contempt, North German morality, worse than the American machine, father of twenty children, relationship to books to Huda, etc., the pupils were told to search Vienna for certain old copies of Beethoven without the customary fingerings, comments, and explanations, and to study the sonatas as much as possible from those unedited editions. Leschetizky was like a father to any pupil about to appear before distinguished critics, and often in the class paid glowing tribute to the one about to play. Just before an appearance of mine in Berlin, he made a little speech in the class, expressing his pride in the pupils from many lands, who from time to time appeared before the greatest critics in Europe, and made touching reference to the little room in which all of this had been accomplished. 
while my own experience is clearer in my mind than any other, I know there were many instances of this sort. On my return to him after the concert, I wondered what he would say about my newspaper notices, which he surely had seen. He met me at the door, flapping a newspaper in his hand and calling out, Aha! You have no diatonic. How is this? Come in, and let's see what they mean. I don't know it, and I don't believe they know either. One of the critics said I had no diatonic in my playing. Another said no American could play the Beethoven E-flat concerto anyway. They don't know how to play Beethoven themselves, said Leschetizky. Haven't the Viennese heard Czerny play Beethoven as Beethoven wanted him, his pupil, to play? Haven't they here all the best traditions? Now, of course, they say the Russians can't play Beethoven, nor the French. Well, then, nobody can play Beethoven. And they think they know so much more than the critics of London, that great city where all the news of the world comes in. And he would speak respectfully of the London Times. Of course, here in Vienna, he went on, there is a whole world of dilettantism. On the other hand, there is no affectation. As a fact, Vienna was full of dilettantes, who seemed almost artists. Dilettantism there was of such a high order that only really musical people could shine at all in its atmosphere. In the well-known family of Wittgenstein, for instance, in whose home Brahms and Joachim were constant guests, one would be asked perhaps some evening to play the horn trio of Brahms, or a quartet of Beethoven, or a sonata. If there was any embarrassment, some member of the family would supply the part, perhaps not with technical perfection, but certainly with a fine sense of musical values and knowledge of the composition. Among Leschetizky's dear friends were the Löwenbergs, living near him in the Wering cottage, who were immensely interested in all his pupils. Paderewski used to visit them and play his new compositions to them whenever he stopped in Vienna on his way to Poland. Grandmother, father, mother, sons, daughters, and grandchildren all played some instrument, and one heard the best chamber music in their house and in many other households and places the performance of serious music was excellent. At the change of guards between twelve and one in the courtyard of the palace, one heard surprisingly good playing of overtures to operas rendered by the military band. Indeed, one heard good music everywhere, as no poorly played music was tolerated. Once Leschetizky counseled me to play more chamber music, and remarked that I should get one of my Viennese friends to practice the violin parts with me, as any one of them would be familiar with it. Of course, in this atmosphere Leschetizky was regarded somewhat as an exotic. He had no more of a place in the world of dilettantism than he had in the pedantic world. He wanted a new story told every time one sat down to the piano, but he stood for the perfection of piano playing and, in a sense, for the dramatization of it for the public. The most talented people in the world came to study with him and began their, their famous careers, which the Viennese were quick to acknowledge as events in their traditionally artistic life. 
they accorded to Leshetitsky their wondering appreciation, and loved also to believe that nowhere else could such a thing have been accomplished. In Vienna there was indeed every chance to become an artist, if there were only the capacity. There always seemed time for study, and for the contemplation of beautiful things in this charming place, where talent so abounded and blossomed. People were very simple here in their attitude toward music. There was hardly any such thing as a best-of-all artist. One artist played Beethoven better than another, they thought. One could not play Chopin well at all, but everything else beautifully. A look of amazement would come over a Viennese face at the words, He is the best. When great artists and actors came together in Vienna, one heard these expressions in all simple seriousness. I did that very badly, but I can do the other, I really believe, better than you can. Or, did you see how I changed the acting of that scene last night? Shall I continue it or not? No, by no means, no. Leschetitsky told an amusing story of his old master of composition, Zechter, who once essayed writing an opera. He told his friends to come to supper afterward if the opera should be a success. It was a flat failure, and no one came to supper. After Zechter had gone to bed, a small voice called him from below. "'Who's there?' asked Zechter. "'I am,' said the man below. "'You invited me to supper.' "'But on the condition that the opera was a success.' "'Well, I liked it,' replied the friend." But Zechter was not a poseur, and the next day went around quite simply telling everyone that he didn't like his opera himself when it came to a performance on the stage. There were always many in Vienna who composed. They did not always publish their compositions, and Leschetitsky made it his duty to examine manuscripts as he heard of them, for fear of missing something first-rate. There was an American in the class who wrote music, a young man from Virginia. He had been a pupil of Leschetitsky's for more than a year when he brought to his lesson one day a theme and variations which he had written the previous summer in America. Leschetitsky heard him play. Then he left the room in great excitement, calling for Eduard Schutt, who was in the house at the time. Schutt, he shouted, come down and see what we have here. It was learned for the first time that day that the young man had studied composition in America, but was now more concerned with becoming an artist. "'You must go on with composition, too,' Leschetitsky advised him. Of course, he meant to compose, he said, but he wanted also to develop his own style. He did not see why any further lessons were necessary. Leschetitsky thought differently. It was just as necessary for him to study how to compose as to study how to play. Still they disagreed, but in the end Leschetitsky had his way. "'Tomorrow you will go to Naratil for composition,' he said, "'or you need never come to me for another lesson.'" When this young composer's Sonata Virginianesque for piano and violin was performed in Vienna, it had a good reception by a most austere body of critics and musicians. They smiled broadly at some of the mistakes, grunted approvingly at some of the moments of inspiration, and on the whole treated the composition with great respect. 
It did not take many years to confirm Leschetizky's estimate of John Powell's splendid talent as a composer. Leschetizky was very proud of the distinctions won by his pupil in Vienna. Margaret Melville also had several large compositions performed in Vienna by the foremost musicians. Frank Laforge was pleasing everybody by his beautiful tone and sympathy in playing. Paul Schillit delighted large audiences, and, as Leschetizky expressed it, she played everything well. She had absolute poise and confidence. At ten years of age, at which time she came to Leschetizky, she had composed many small pieces, and the musical papers of the continent spoke highly of her sense of form. At her age, this puzzled her very much, and one day I found Leschetizky laughing heartily over her curiosity as to what the critics meant by this opinion of her compositions. She played with great freedom, and several times amused her audiences by making an improvisation at the place in her piece where she had struck a wrong note. On one occasion, at the end of a run, she struck a wrong note and took the note as motive, improvising for several minutes upon the theme. This was done so artistically that it excited the greatest wonder, and the audience of the Busendorfer Saal stood up to watch her. These were interesting events in Leschetizky's life, and an observer of his manner might easily believe that his own career as pianist could never have been so interesting to him as those of his pupils. He was tireless in his efforts to make artists of us all. Nothing was too difficult for him to undertake, and formidable obstacles were many times overcome. By the greatest patience in trying to cure fundamental faults, he succeeded in almost eradicating them. One of his best pupils had no memory, and he was determined that she should be able to memorize her pieces. He set himself the enormous task of dictating every note of the Schumann Concerto. When they had at last finished this process and were ready to play from the beginning again, she had forgotten every note. This did not discourage him in the least, and when, in the third attempt, she showed signs of improvement, he was overjoyed and exclaimed that there was a way to learn everything if one could only find the way. No, not everything, he added, for there was one thing impossible to learn, and no amount of effort would accomplish it. What he referred to was the playing of one tone with expression. Then he mentioned the case of an actor who by the pronunciation of a single word could move audiences to tears. In playing, one might feel and know how the tone should sound, but it could not be learned. This was easy, or else it was impossible. 